Good morning, everyone. All right. I want to take you back for a moment, back before some of you were born, into the late 90s. What a glorious time to be alive. Now, in the late 90s, we had the rise of the internet. And we simultaneously had the best and the worst internet. I'm talking about Could you guys click on the first slide for me? There we go. AOL. How many of you guys remember AOL? Wow, look at that. How many of you guys remember getting that that trial CD and you're going to try to maximize how many times you could use it, right? And your your 30 days would expire and you're like, time to create a new email account, right? Man, I, I remember like... Simultaneously loving and hating the sound it would make, you know, the one I'm talking about, the when it's like connecting to the internet, right? And they had like the monopoly. This they had the internet cornered in the 90s, right? This was like the search engine. Like you lived and breathed online on AOL, right? Well, it kind of like AOL did some weird things, but what they kind of wanted to protect their users. Uh, identities a little bit. So they try to make anonymous users. And so on the back end of things, it'd be like, each person would be like, oh, I'm user 58671, right? But what was quickly exposed by New York Times was that that's not really secure because your search information was kind of public domain, right? People could, they might not know who you are, but they could look at user 58601, or I don't remember what number I said before. They could look that up and see, like, you could start to track all the things that person's looking at. And you could start to kind of narrow down either the type of person or maybe even specifically who that person was. And it kind of became like this pretty dangerous thing. And it's one of the things that kind of like contributed to AOL's, uh, I don't want to say demise, but it definitely like it didn't do well for them. And it certainly made way for other major search engines to come in and, and start to take over. But what was interesting is this idea of what people searched for, you could tell a lot about. A lot of marketing today is based off that, right? They know, all right, you're a, you're a, a 40-year-old female, uh, appears to have some kids, and so they'll come up with all these things that, hey, you'll probably like these things. I don't want to say anything specific because I don't want to offend, right? But they'll use like the, some of those things to start to market towards you. And the thing about it is your search history and what, can, can reveal a lot about who you are. The things that you're looking to can demonstrate a lot about you, and it can actually start to reveal even idols in your lives, things you're looking towards for answers or meaning or purpose, right? Where is your time and your energy focused and fixated? Where is all your money going? Can be revealed in that way. Where you're searching is important. Well, we're going to be taking a look at Israel. And once again, while they know who Yahweh is, they've begun searching for answers elsewhere. They've begun to look at the gods of, of the, the uh, nations around them for answers. And as we're going to see, they begin to 
look to them for the answers, look to those things for the solutions, and spend their time focusing on those things, and they become these great idols that pull them away from the worship of the one true God who is worthy of worship. So, just for quick context, where we're at as we're going through the whole uh, story of the Bible, uh, we've talked about how Israel as a nation uh, looked around them and saw that, hey, these guys got kings. All we have is a God king. We really want a man king. That sounds like a good plan. And so they go to their priest and they say, hey, we want a man king. And God says, all right, listen, I'll give you guys a man king. But here's the thing. I want to warn you, if you do, he's going to tax you. It's going to be burdensome. He will have full control of basically all your possessions, and even your children can be made his slaves or be put into his military. And, and, and it can be a pretty oppressive situation, Israel. And Israel looks at God, who's brought them out of Egypt, who's preserved and protected them and conquered nations for them, and they say, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good deal. And so they reject God. And God, in his graciousness, gives them Saul. Saul turns out to be a flop, right? Then, then David comes along. And David is a man after God's own heart, but as we all know, far from a perfect guy. Well, David has a son, Solomon. And we've been talking about like the Psalms and, and uh, Proverbs over the last couple of weeks and talking about, a little bit about Solomon and the temple. Well, Solomon also has some issues, Right? He, he ends up marrying 700 women, which is against what God wants him to do. And, and he begins to like become a little bit corrupted and begins to make some compromises. And the nation of Israel is looking at him, and guess what? Just like God had warned about the taxes, they're not happy about the taxes. right? And so basically God allows this to happen where the nation of Israel splits. You have 10 tribes that move up to the north and two tribes that remain in the south. And the northern tribes we call Israel, the southern tribes, or the southern kingdom we call Judah. Okay? Now, you have this, this massive split in these two nations. And a lot of times we can look at the northern tribe and be like, oh, that was the bad one. Because they never had a good king. They were all evil kings in the northern tribe. And, and what ends up happening is very, like, somewhat relatively short amount of time, the northern kingdom falls to Assyria. But the thing is, even though the southern kingdom still has some good kings and some bad kind of mixed in, overall, they're also handed into judgment and are conquered by the Babylonians. But prior to that, God uses prophets. And God is going to continue to use those prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament, all the way up until we get to the New Testament. All right? Like Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Rebecca, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all those guys, right? Plus Elijah, Elisha, and, and, like, and others. Okay? So, God's going to send these guys. They're going to go to the king. They're going to either go to the king, if there is one still, or they're going to go to the people of Israel and say, hey, guys, get your act right. Repent. It's the same message. Turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord over and over and over. Worship him alone. Turn to the Lord. Seek him. Search him. That's what they're always calling for. And at the same time, they're always saying, pointing, hey, put your hope in him and pointing to the Messiah, the one who's going to come one day. That's the role of these, of these Old Testament prophets. Yeah, hey, click through it. Cool. Now, 
As we've had the kingdom divided, there is a king in the northern kingdom of Israel that comes to power. His name is King Ahab. And I'm glad I said King Ahab because as I've been going through my lesson, <laughs> as I've been going through my lesson, I keep calling him Captain Ahab, and that's a very different guy. <laughs> so if I slip and call him Captain Ahab, you know who I'm talking about. Now, Ahab is a bad dude. In fact, the Bible goes pretty clear and pretty hard on this guy. In 1 first, in first Kings 16.33, it says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. All right? It says in the just two verses before, like, he's just evil. And part of the issue with, with Ahab is He's not following after God. He's not listening to Yahweh. In fact, he's taken for himself a Sidonian princess, right? Like he's doing this thing where he intermarries and then he takes on her culture. And you guys have probably heard of her, Jezebel, right? She still single-handedly has sullied that name for many to this day, right? That's never a name that's associated with something positive. And part of the reason was because of how she handled God's people. She, she comes in and, and kind of like converts. I don't know if she converts. I don't know if, what Ahab ever really did believe. But Ahab ends up building a temple to Baal. Right? He begins to practice Baal worship. And on top of that, the two of them try to kill all of Yahweh's prophets. Right? They're trying to remove the other types of worship and are formalizing this. And so Ahab is just praying and going before and bound before Baal. All right? It's a pretty, pretty terrible situation. Now, a lot of time we, we've heard of Baal, like as we've studied the Bible, right? A lot of us like know he's kind of like the villain God, but we don't always know a whole lot about him. We're like, I think he's the gold cow one, but we're not sure, right? But the thing is, the thing to know about Baal, this clicker is having a hard time this morning. The thing to know about Baal, um, well, there's a few things to know about him. Uh, first, he is a Canaanite deity, right? And, and he is, um, it, I can't really understate how evil it is, or he is, right? Um, they consider him to be the god of the weather, the god of the clouds. And because it's an agrarian society where like a lot of things depend, you know, the, the crops and stuff depend on the rain, he was also considered like a god of fertility. And so one of the ways that they would worship him was through sex in the temple, sometimes temple prostitution. And then as a way of late-stage abortion, they would sacrifice their child, their children to him. It didn't even have to be that, but it was often the firstborn of, of a family was to be sacrificed, burnt, uh, before Baal. So really just a terrible cult, right? Just satanic, terrible. And so this is what the king of Israel is leading his followers to. And God is going to continue to, to bring judgment and try to pull him back to him. And so he sends the prophet Elijah. You're going to a king who's pretty disagreeable, who already hates, you know, his wife already hates you, right? But he sends Elijah to Ahab. And Ahab says this. He says, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give word. Think about this. Baal is considered the god of the weather, right? He controls the storms. He controls the lightning, according to them, right? And now, just like we saw God do with all those deities in Egypt, he's saying, hey, 
You think he's in control of those things? I'm going to show you who's really in control. So he sends a drought. And when he sends this drought, this summons and awakens this anger and this hatred and this wrath in Jezebel. And they seek out kingdom upon kingdom, trying to find Elijah to kill him. Right? They want this guy just obliterated. And so we arrive at our passage this morning. 1 Kings 18. If you guys want to open up, up to that. Uh, we're looking at 1 Kings 18, 16 through 29. So we're picking up with that. It says, so Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come. And Ahab went out to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he explained, so is it really you, the troublemaker of Israel? <clears throat> I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers. Can you imagine saying that to a king? You have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now, summon all Israel to join me on Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who are, who are supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the, all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Uh, then... Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? Is, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people were completely silent. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now, bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish to cut into pieces and lay, in the wood, uh, and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the, bull, uh, the other bull and lay it on wood on the altar, but I will not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the, of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, all right, you go first. For there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it and call, it, uh, and call in the name of your God, but do not set fire, on, fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then, uh, then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar that they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them, saying, ah, you should shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is God. Perhaps he's daydreaming, or maybe he's relieving himself, or maybe he's away on a trip, or is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they shouted louder, and following their normal customs, they cut themselves with knives and swords until blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Now, what we see here is God's going to use Elijah to go and basically throw down this gauntlet, right? All right, you guys have been believing this. You also say you believe in Yahweh. Let's see who's who. Let's see who really has the power. And, 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 you, and the idea is, hey, we're going to make two altars. You guys get first pick of the cow. You guys, get, you guys can do your own thing. You guys can start this off, right? And they make two altars, and it says, like, hey, whichever one gets ignited by God, basically he's consuming the offering of his people, 
that's who we'll know is the real one. So they begin to do this worship service, right? The prophets of Baal are trying to summon Baal uh, to, to light this fire for them. And they begin to do a practice which is called self-flagellation, right? And it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty gross, gruesome thing, right? It's like, oh, they're cutting themselves with knives and spears, the blood's flowing. This was a pretty common ancient practice, and even some misguided sects of Christianity have partaken in similar things. But the, the idea of it is they're trying to demonstrate their unworthiness, or they're trying to like flog themselves to show like, hey, I deserve punishment. And it's like this idea of like, I'm, I'm being, trying to be repentant or, purif or purifying myself. Right? Some scholars have suggested that by allowing the blood to flow, which is the, like the life force of the person, it was, it was supposed to be like, I don't know, like an offering to Baal. Right? But they continue this, this futile exercise, like beating themselves, crying out to their God to, to bring down this fire. Right? And as the day goes on, from morning into night, they become more desperate and they're still pleading and still crying out. And we look at this situation, we're like, that's crazy. What a crazy way to worship, right? That's like, why would somebody do that? But the reality is, these people, like we've, I've shared in the past, have misplaced their hope, right? Baal hasn't allowed it to rain for three years. God has said, I'm not going to let it rain. But, and yet, they're continuing to press on and hold on to this God that has not acted on their behalf. Not to say that, like, <laughs> we can make God do what we want, right? But they've been crying out to this deity who has never proven himself, never truly revealed himself because he doesn't exist. And we can look at the people of Baal and, and kind of think, like, wow, that's ridiculous. Why would anybody spend all that time and all that energy pursuing, right? They're trying to find the end of a drought, and they're looking and searching in the wrong places for the answers. And yet, so many of us spend an awful lot of time trying to get what we want by looking in the wrong places, Many of us have kind of like different voids in our lives, right? We're seeking satisfaction. We're seeking something better. And we can, we can strive for it. And we look at it and we, and we put these things on this pedestal that we all are going after. And it costs great time and great energy and great effort. And we might not be beating our, our bodies, but we're kind of beating up our souls in the pursuit of these things. And sometimes we attain them and it gives us that momentary satisfaction. But it always wanes. We seek after other gods and other idols for, the, to, to, for our answers, for our fulfillment. We look to the things that the world around us tells us will, will, will do this. And inevitably, there's no response. A lot of us unintentionally harbor idols in our lives. It's, it's one thing, you know, some, sometimes it's obvious, Right? Oh, it's my car. I spend all kinds of time working on it in the shop. I just obsess over it. I'm looking at it all the time, blah, 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 right? Sometimes that's not as obvious. We can make our families our idols. We can make our, our own desires, ourselves, our own idols. Like we have a, like this absurd, uh, I don't want to call it a gift, <laughs> but ability to, to make idols in our lives out of just about anything. And one of the, there's, there's something I like to call the idol test. One of the ways you can know if it's an idol is this. 
where's your treasure? Right? The Bible says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where are you spending your time and your resources? Where does your mind constantly go? If you reflect on your day-to-day life, what, 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 what is it that you consistently go back to or perseverate on? And the other one is, what is it in your life that would feel like death to take it away? You know what I mean? Like, if, if tomorrow that, 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 I used that analogy of a car earlier, if, if tomorrow that car, that, that 80 or that 65 Mustang sitting in your garage, like just burns up, crushing, right? Soul crushing. What are the things in your life? And, and are they taking a place in your life that should be filled with God? Right? We try to fill all like, our longings and desires and a lot of our fears and, and, and try to fix all these things by looking to other places. We try to f- find, find fulfillment and satisfaction by looking to all these other places instead of looking to God. Even our own sense of who we are. Right? We have a tendency to say, well, if I look better, if I, if I get these new makeup products, if I work out more, then I'll, then I'll have value. And we forget that it's God who created you. God who made you in his image. God who, who died for you and loved you. And just by, his, by him saying so, by him creating you alone, and by giving, you, giving his life for you, gives you value. And yet we so often look to other places. We end up worshiping at the feet of other idols. I want to ask you guys this morning, how do you worship? Right? A couple weeks ago, I shared uh, this, the same passage, Romans 12, 1. I think it's important. I think it bears repeating. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your true and proper worship. Worshiping in song is great, and I encourage you to do it. And I definitely encourage you to do more than just going, Almighty Mortress is Right? You know, the mouthing, the prayers. We serve an amazing, incredible God who's worthy of our praise and is worthy of our songs. But it's more than that. Our God is worthy of our lives. We're offering ourselves as living sacrifices. That means you can worship God by treating your boss with kindness and grace that he doesn't deserve. That means you can worship God by offering forgiveness. That means you can worship God by by. by Sharing, by sharing the gospel with others. You can do it in your day-to-day lives as you die to yourself and your own desires and you, you, tr- you um, focus on what matters to God. What happens next here in this passage? I, it's biblical narrative, right? And so you can't base theology around it. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but what Elijah does is hilarious to me, right? Now, <clears throat> As an Eagles fan, as all of us should be, we all have something in common that goes beyond just our love for the Eagles, and that's our hatred of the Cowboys. Now, with that said, one of the great moments, I remember, I don't, I don't love the 49ers at all, right? No love for the 49ers. But there was one day, because there were playing against the Cowboys, I found myself cheering for the 49ers. And in 2000, I watched something incredible happen. Terrell Owens makes a touchdown catch in 
the Cowboys Stadium. And rather than just spiking the football there and celebrating with the guys, he runs out to center field onto the star in the middle of their field to celebrate and spike the ball there and give the audience one of these, right? The Cowboys are furious at that level of disrespect. One of them runs out and tackles him, right? And you're, but like everybody, everybody who's not in Dallas is like, yes, it feels so good, right? You're, you love the taunt. Now, unfortunately, the commissioners at the NFL didn't like the taunting because they got rid of it, but there's something about it that we look at and we're like, yes, that's right. <laughs> I'm not saying that's right, but you know what I'm saying, right? Well, Elijah kind of pulls a similar thing here, right? He starts openly taunting these guys. They're in the middle of this worship service. They're panicking. They're dancing. They're beating themselves. They're cutting themselves with, with swords and spears and blood's flowing. And Elijah's like, hey, it seems to be working, guys. Keep it up. Right? And he starts openly mocking them. He's like, hey, you should, oh, you know what? Guys, it's not working. Maybe if you're a little louder, a little bit louder now. Right? And then he's like, oh, you know what? I bet, I bet the problem is Bale's probably just, he's thinking it over. He, he, just, he just doesn't know what to think, right? He's just, he's a silly God. Lots of, lots of things on his mind, right? There's this idea of it, like, oh, maybe he's wandered off the road, right? He's kind of this God who's just aimless and lost, right? Kind of, uh, I don't know what I can say. Um, some of you guys know. People come to mind, right? But he's kind of aimless and wandering, right? And like, that's how he's kind of casting Baal in this light. And then he says things like, oh, maybe, maybe he's, maybe he's um, in the bathroom, right? All these things that are human necessities, all these things would be degrading or even like blasphemous, right? To say, Elijah's just saying them about their God and openly taunting. You have 450 prophets of Baal and the king and the queen all backing this. And he has all the confidence in the world. These people could have doused that light, that altar in kerosene and been throwing matches at it, and God's not going to let that thing light. And Elijah knows this. And so he's mocking. He's like, this is, he's kind of pointing out the absurdity of what they're doing. You are worshiping a falsity. Now, before I go further with this, I do want to point out, Again, because I think it bears repeating, there's a lot of times we want to test God in our lives, right? We kind of want to be like, all right, God, if you want me to do this, then you got to do this first. Bible makes it pretty clear the testing comes on God's terms, right? Even Jesus, when he's being tempted in the desert and, and Satan brings him on top of the temple roof, he's like, ah, throw yourself off. And God says, or Jesus says to him, hey, you don't test the Lord your God, right? And he's referencing a passage in Deuteronomy it's not for us to get ahead of God and to tell God what he's going to do. It's not for us to test God and challenge him. God will reveal himself in the way he chooses to reveal himself, when he chooses to reveal himself. Ours is to follow and to look at what he has done. Okay? I just want to be clear on that because a lot of times we get a little bit misguided and get ahead of ourselves there. So, let's look at what he does. 1 Kings 18, 30 through 35. <clears throat> it says, Then Elijah called to the people, Come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took twelve stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it 
and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And, they, <clears throat> and when they were finished, he said, eh, do it a third time. So they did, as he said, and the water around the altar, er, ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Now, <clears throat> we're not told in this passage why the altar has been torn down. Who tore it down? But we do see Elijah rebuilding it. And this broken down altar is really a picture of the state of the hearts of Israel. See, Israel has, is, it, it, there's this clear picture here of, hey, this altar's not been in use. God has told them to make sacrifices and to go before him, and yet this is in disarray. It's clear that nobody has been accessing this, right? Israel has kind of grown cold in their worship of God the way that he has, he has commanded them to. And, and, and it, he, while he's had them make sacrifices, you can tell that he's, they're not going to him. This was a source of, you know, going before God was, uh, he was the one who created this nation. He was the one who gave them their very identity. And yet the people of Israel aren't going to him. I have to wonder what it's like for us to fix our own altars. See, they're told, to, they're, they're told that the altar is something they use, they use for worship, and while we don't have that today, we sure do have a lot of dusty Bibles, right? We're told to be in relationship with God, going before him, praying continually, bringing our requests to him, right? There's a sense that we're called to go before him and humble ourselves and worship him in song and in, in, in dedicating our lives to him. And yet a lot of us have crumbled altars in our homes, where we know who God is, but on a day-to-day -day basis, we're not worshiping him outside of the 20 minutes before service and the 10 minutes after. God calls us to, to fix these altars. God calls us to, to relation, into relationship with him, to go to his word, and to find like, your identity and your purpose and your meaning and be filled with him. It's the source of the answers. God calls us into this worship. And I want to encourage you guys, fix your altar. Whatever that's going to look like, fix your altar and begin to worship him. And so Elijah begins pulling these, these stones and it says he pulls these 12 stones and they represent Israel. And this is kind of interesting when we think of our climate today. Because keep in mind, he's pulling 12 stones, but as I said earlier, Israel's divided. He's he, there's 10 tribes in the north, two in the south. He doesn't just pull the two good stones, right? He pulls all 12 stones to make this altar, and each one's a picture. And, and what you see here is that it's God is greater than the political situation that's currently happening in Israel. They're politically divided, but united because God brought them together. Let that truth sink in when you think about our political climate. We're very good at allowing the, the politics divide us. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have great discussion, discourse, arguments, but we can't allow things like that to supersede the thing that unites us, and that is our life in Christ. So he pulls these stones together. And then in addition to that, it says he pours water on it, right? And, and it, there's something that's kind of interesting when it gets to the water here. He gets... Um, 
He has them take four gallons of water three times. Three times four is 12. So there's one, like one of these gallons of water, or one of these pitchers per tribe of Israel. As we all know, uh, water is oftentimes associated with purity and the spirit of God. And so you have this picture of God being poured out over Israel, and he is the one who can bring purification. He is the one who can bring unity to this, right? Now, I know that that could just be like a analogous word picture, right? The Bible's not super clear on what it means, but it's interesting to me that you have that number three where it is that number of perfection. And um, I think it's one of those things that's kind of like, hey, that's, that's worth noting. But what is, it, what is clear is that he's stacking the deck against God now, right? He gave, uh, he gave Baal every advantage. Hey, you get to go first. You can take as long as you want. They took from morning till night. Oh, you can have as many prophets as you would like. All your prophets. Do whatever you want, right? You guys can, you guys get first pick. You guys get dibs. You can build your own altar. All these, like, you know, benefits that they have. Now we're in a drought, and Elijah is taking what I would imagine is very precious water at this time, dumping it lavishly over the altar. How many of you guys have tried to make a fire when you're camping, and all you can find is the wet sticks? Right? It's nigh impossible to get that thing going, right? And so not only does Baal have all the advantages, he's giving Yahweh the handicaps. And, and, and the idea here is, like, it's kind of twofold. One, God's going to do whatever God wants to do. That's the reality of this. And it's also showing the people that, look, this is, this is not like a trick. This is not magic. I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm really making it clear. If this is going to light, I can't do it. It's got to be from God. Now, these guys have been praying all day to Baal. Watch what happens here. Starting in verse 36, it says, At the usual time of the offering, uh, for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed. All right, time this. All right, time this. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are the God in Israel, that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this as, at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven. Time, what's the time? How much? 15 seconds. 15 seconds, guys. Baal had all day. Baal's got all the time in the world. God immediately responds to this prayer. God's not going to immediately respond to all your prayers. Don't get me wrong. But you see like the, just the, the magnitude, the greatness of God here, right? This is our God. Everybody in the world is looking to other things, other answers for the solutions to problems. They're searching all these different avenues. Our God is the only place that has power and, and is, has the market cornered on truth. He's the one who responds immediately and in a big fashion. The fire doesn't like, oh, it's a little bonfire. No, the fire comes out of heaven, right? It's, you can't, like, how are they going to claim Elijah did that, right? Comes out of heaven. Now, how many of you guys have been standing by that same campfire? You get it lit, miraculously with the wet sticks, right? And you're like roasting your little s'more. And you're like, ooh, it's a little warm. I'm going to step back a little bit, right? Guys, this column of fire is melting rocks. We can glance over this, but that's like probably somewhere in the category of about 5,000 degrees, 
right? Maybe hotter, right? Like at best, it could be like around 2,000, but by the state of these rocks, probably around 5,000 degrees. That is hot, right? It's so hot the water doesn't have a chance to boil, it immediately evaporates, right? And, and you, you could just imagine like this blast of fire and all the spectators and all the 450 prophets of Baal who've been screaming and crying out all day, you could just imagine that heat on their faces, right? Like I can't even imagine what this experience would have been like. God has proven himself and revealed who he is in this column of fire. And what's cool about it is this altar is just destroyed, right? It's, there's nothing left of it. What is left is a monument to the failure of Baal. The altar of Baal still stands as a testimony to his impotence against the God of omnipotence. God miraculously sends this column of fire, and you can see what happens with all those who are in attendance, right? They recognize, just as it happens when you encounter God, this is God. This is the Lord. This is the one. Guys, so often we can go astray, and it's when we come back that we, and, and, and understand who God is and lift up our hearts and bring them before him and worship and study who he is that we become inclined to say, oh, God, I remember. Because when you encounter God, you can't help but worship him. This is what happens when we fix those altars in our lives. When we say, God, I've been wasting my time, my energy, my resources, pursuing things that are not of you. Lord, I want to go to you first. When we humble ourselves and go before him, they say he is worthy of our praise. Now, <clears throat> God, by the nature of who he is, is worthy of our praise. Because God created, he is worthy of our praise. But we have a God who does more than that. We have a God who, while we were still sinning, while we still continue to sin, loves us. A God who is so vastly beyond our comprehension above us, loves us, and then sends himself to die, humbles himself to be the payment for our disobedience, not just to anybody, but disobedience against him. Think about that. He dies for our rebellious hearts. And then not only that, but he offers us salvation so that we don't have to experience that pain of death. We can now be free of death. And that would be pretty great as it is to not have to go to hell. But then he goes even further. He's like, no, eternal life with me. That's a pretty great deal too. That is a vastly amazing God who's worthy of our praise. And then on top of that, it's not even just that we get eternal life, but we have life in him now. We get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to empower us, to lead us, to convict us, to guide us, to comfort us. God provides continuously for us and is the one worthy of our praise. Elijah gives this, this three-part prayer here. I think it's worth breaking it down a little bit. The first part is he wants to remind, he reminds the people that he, uh, that he is the covenant God of Israel. He reminds them of their purpose. He reminds them that God is their creator. Next, he, uh, <clears throat> he prays that he would be vindicated. In this day, it was a common practice to stone the, uh, uh, the prophets that were making false prophecies. And as you'll, like, if you read on, we're not going to cover it today, but all the prophets of Baal are killed in this <clears throat> shortly thereafter. 
but it's more than that. It's not just to prove that what he's saying is valid, but it's, he cares. Elijah is concerned about God's reputation. He's concerned about God's reputation. He doesn't want him to, to look bad or have, peop, like, have people allowed to look down upon God. He cares about that. And lastly, he, cares, he, he, wants, he wants the people, uh, he prays that the people would know Yahweh was God and, would repent, and that they would repent at, repent at once. See, Elijah also cares for the well-being of, those, of all these other people. I think it's interesting. Uh, I've been studying through this book on missions lately. And when God gives, when Jesus gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, it's in the context of worship. And, it's, and in it, God says, like, people are worshiping, some believe, some doubted. And in that context, God says, go and make disciples of all nations, right? Part of our lives as believers is to be worshiping him. That's, that's the goal of every believer. We are designed, we are made to glorify God. And if we're not doing that, we're failing to meet our purposes. And then that worship is supposed to be so contagious and so infectious that we want to go and tell others about this God who offers this salvation. And part of our worship is sharing that. And so that other people will come and that other people will worship him. Our lives as believers are supposed to be based around lives of worship to God, glorifying him in everything we say and everything that we do. I'm going to end uh, with this, this psalm, uh, this verse in Psalms. Psalm 145.1 says, <clears throat> Every day. I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. And I want this to kind of be our prayer and simultaneously our challenge. It says, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will command your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. Guys, we have a great and powerful God who is absolutely worthy of all our praise, of all our worship, of every facet of our beings. I want to encourage you guys to do that heart work, to look inwardly and to see, is there anything, is there any idols in my life that need to be cast down? Repent and go to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. Um, for, for the truth of your word. I thank you for who you are and what you've done for us and, and just the, the power and, and greatness that we see of you in this story. But Lord, I pray that it won't just be a cool story, that it won't just be something that's exciting or invigorating, Lord, but I pray that it'll be a truth that reaches into our hearts, Lord, that you would help us to remove any idols that get in our way of worshiping you and that we would worship you and you alone. Lord, help us to be men and women who will bring other people to do the same. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your love, and we thank you for your mercy and your patience with us. In your name we pray. Amen.